The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance on our, of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. It's so incredible that the prophecy came to the people of Jerusalem of God replanting the seeds, of making the new places come alive 500 years before it happened. There's a beautiful picture of Advent hope in Alan Patton's novel, Cry the Beloved Country. An old South African pastor named Stephen Kamalo has gone to Johannesburg to find his son, Jonathan. And when he finds him, Jonathan is in jail for killing a white lawyer named Arthur Jarvis, who was an advocate for black rights and had written a book about the urgency for justice in that hate-filled country. Kamalo then goes to the elder Jarvis, the lawyer's father, to apologize for his son's crime. Instead of refusing to see him or berating him for Jonathan's act, Jarvis receives him kindly. He has been reading the manuscript of his son's book, and it has spoken to him of what must be done. Now, learning that Kamalo's little church in the village of Nadeshenti needs a new house of worship, Jarvis vows to build it for them. He also promises to send great earth-moving equipment and build a dam for the village so that the people will have a year-round water supply. Patton writes, the very rumor of what is to be done sends a shockwave of hope through the populace of Natashendi. There will be water for irrigation. They can raise cattle. There will be food and milk for the children so that the young will no longer drift off to the cities to find work. There will be laughter and there will be singing again. Nothing has happened yet, writes Patton, yet it's as if it has. And then he says, 
although nothing has come yet, something is here already. This is precisely what the speaker of Isaiah 61 has been anointed for, the mission of radical proclamation. This is what good news does. It's a moment of transformation that although nothing has come yet, something is here already. The context for Isaiah 20 of 61 is a return from exile. Places long devastated, cities collapsing, ruins beyond repair. The project is too big for the Israelites to undertake. The Israelites returned home from exile and faced an enormous heartache. The devastation of Jerusalem, of Judah. When an area that many have called home has suffered severe devastation, can that place truly be called home again? The Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah paint the picture so vividly of those first refugees returning to home to start to rebuild their lives. And what do they do? They tear their clothes, they wail, and they weep for what has happened. That they feel abandoned by God who has not restored this land. It affects them physically. And emotionally, they they feel like they had lost their connection to God. They feel like they had lost their connection to their community. In the midst of recovering from such devastating events, or even more subtle changes over time like happens in our lives, our minds can sometimes play tricks on us. People are bound to the memories of the past, stating, remember then when life was so good? There may be a yearning to rely on memories of what a place was like before this all happened. There may be a reliance on memories that can become unreliable. Isaiah writes of the reality of mourning, recalling faint spirit, ashes, the places long devastated. These were true times of despair, wondering where God was in the midst of turmoil and confusion. Last week we talked about where is God in the desert? Where is God in the wilderness? And now we're asking the question, where is God in the turmoil, in the devastation, in the confusion of our lives? And the Israelites may have also had their memories play tricks on them, thinking that God caused their despair. But instead of causing their pain, God was with the Israelites in the midst of their suffering lamenting with them and journeying with them to the land of their exile. God was also present in their celebration and their homecoming, restoring their homeland after the disaster of war. And we can get confused in our own lives and we say, where is God in this? How can God have let this happen? God doesn't cause that pain. He's standing there with us in the middle of that pain to say, yes, I know you're heartbroken and I am too. Let's sit here a little while with that. Isaiah 61 was preached by a prophet in Israel to a congregation that was very unhappy. They'd been in exile for over 70 years and then, just like that, 
They were delivered. It was over. But think about their time in exile. What did they long for? They lived for little else but restoration to their homeland. They wanted to be restored once again to the good graces of God. To see those holy places that he had brought them to. The promised land that was promised to them. Weren't things so great before? Weren't we doing so well before? And now these places have become long devastated after 70 years. They prayed, they waited, they remembered what things were like. The life of an exile is mostly a matter of fantasies and longings, and the Jews were exiles. That's all their life was, longing and remembrance. Oh God, how far you have taken me from you. Oh God, my enemies surround me. These are the songs, these are the psalms that we get, that we read every week. God, deliver me from my enemies. They have surrounded me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) Boy, doesn't that come back time and time again. That was Jesus' plea on the cross to his father. But he knows, right? He knows that God has not forsaken him. He knows that God has not given up on Israel. He knows that God has delivered them from their exile, where he was as well. It only feels that way. It only feels like God has forsaken us at those moments. They remembered, though, those green fields, the fertile vineyards, the magnificent temple of Solomon, and the city they had left. They remembered their homes and villages and the beauties of their festivals. They remembered their neighbors and their loved ones who died during the journey and died in exile. And a generation, 70 years of people have grown up not knowing their home. Restore us, God. Restore us. How happy we were when those first people started to come back. But how sad we were when we saw those places long devastated. Those first reports of their homeland was not encouraging. Jerusalem, their holy city, was rubble. Solomon's temple was a pile of rocks. The fields were overrun with brambles and weeds. Wild animals foraged in the vineyards. Nothing Nothing, nothing was like what they remembered. What was the glory in coming back from exile when this is what they had to come home to? The entire nation experienced ashes, mourning, a faint spirit. And then, And then the prophet starts to speak for God to his people. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release them from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. 
I think the key to understanding this text is the repeated word. Did you catch it? It's the word instead. A crown of beauty instead of ashes. In ancient cultures, ashes were placed on the head when there was a disaster. Burned out debris placed on the head symbolized the desolation of the mind. The world burns out and hope fails. There is nothing of beauty or desire left. The ashes provide visibility for the inner experience of a charred ruin. The crown of beauty, the garland, on the other hand, is placed on the head to represent jubilant victory. Fashioned out of laurel leaves or meadow flowers, it's woven in the shape of a crown and put on the head of a person who has won an athletic contest or is celebrating a birthday. It's no wonder they put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head because they were mocking the tradition of the garland, the laurel wreaths on the head. The fresh green leaves and colorful blossoms gives visibility to the inner experience of exuberance and beauty. Here's another one. The oil of joy instead of mourning. Mourning dries up the face. Tears streaming from the eyes and down the face leave a parched, dry skin. Through the days of lamentation, the face becomes a desert, baked and cracked by the sun. Oil, on the other hand, plentiful from the olive groves, restores softness and moisture to the face, loosens up the facial muscles, and softens the skin. And as the sun touches it, it brings out a glistening youthfulness, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Now, a faint spirit is weak and lifeless. The person is inert, can't go anywhere, has no interest in getting out in the world, no strength to engage in work or recreation. He or she languishes in bed behind drawn curtains, not even getting dressed, no one to see and nothing to do. The mantle, the garment of praise, however, is the garment you put on when you go out into the world to do something or see someone. It's a piece of clothing that readies you for vigorous participation in the world. When you leave the house and throw a mantle across your shoulders, you are ready to work or play with confidence and zest. This triple instead declares emphatically that an exchange is possible. 150 years ago, trading posts were scattered all over the West, and trappers would spend months in the wilderness accumulating skins of otters or minks or beavers or bobcats but they didn't want to keep those. That wasn't the end to those means. They wanted something else, right? So periodically they would take their skins to the trading post and exchange them for food, for tools, for money. It still happens today. Well, before we buy something, we want to know what's your exchange policy? If I buy this, can I return it? Is it just store credit or do I get my money back? If I wear it to the party and I bring it back the next day, are you going to still charge me for it? People exchange items they receive as gifts, but they don't really want them. They don't sit around and feel sorry for themselves, wishing they had gotten something else. They take it back to the store and they exchange it for something they do want. 
An exchange did take place. This faint spirit, mourning, ash-covered people, they came alive. They exchanged their faint spirits for mantles, for garments of praise. They went to work rebuilding the cities, refashioning the temple, reconstructing city walls. They planted fields and gardens. They restored the towns. Songs of praise began to sound in the streets and temple and synagogues. And some of the happiest songs ever written, like we read this morning, came out of this time period. And they're all collected in the Psalms. These songs of ascent. Israel became a resurrection community. Their worship and study and service to God shaped a national identity and spirit. And eventually one person appeared in which the entire promise was summed up and exhibited. Jesus of Nazareth. 500 years after the prophet first preached these words to the Hebrew people, Jesus the Messiah himself stood in the Nazareth synagogue and read from the Isaiah scroll, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Luke 4, 18. He stands in their midst and he reaches for this scroll and he reads this to them. And he simply says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. Because how dare you? How dare you claim to be the Messiah? How dare you claim to be the one that brings joy, that brings restoration, that brings an exchange policy here to our lives? How dare you? And who today can doubt that it was? As Jesus lived out the prophetic role defined in Isaiah, all the great insteads became believable and operational in him. Just look at some of them. A Samaritan woman spoke with Jesus at a well. She was a five-time marriage failure. She was a member of a religious group that had failed. Her life was one failure after another among a people who had a racial, radical sense of inferiority. A life of ashes. Jesus spoke to her gently, firmly, and lovingly. He offered her water of life. And he gave, her, he gave himself to her as the Savior. And her life blossomed. She found joy as Jesus placed a garland on her head. Or how about this? A Jewish, a Jewish ruler named Jairus had a 12-year-old daughter who was seriously ill. She was on her deathbed. The house was filled with despair. Every heart there was a desert as the young life withered before their eyes. Jesus entered the home and raised the girl to health, to new life. It was an anointing with oil. The faces once drawn and pitched in sorrow now glistened with joy. How about this one? A son left home with his inheritance and squandered it in reckless, immoral, irresponsible rebellion a prodigal. He lost his pride, his purpose, his will to live, a broken and demoralized man, a faint spirit if there ever was one. And so he decided to return to his father and home and he was welcomed with a celebratory feast 
His father's forgiving generosity restored him to the family. The best robe in the house was placed on him. A garment of praise for certain. The promise is clear. God invites us to make exchanges. And the documentation is pervasive throughout the Bible. Exchanges took place repeatedly with Israel and with Jesus. The expectation is reinforced in the final book of Scripture, in Revelation. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The possibilities for these transactions are embedded deep in the nature of life that God creates in Jesus Christ. The ashes of disappointment have been traded in for a wreath of hope. The mourning over sin traded in for the oil of glad salvation. The faint spirit of depression traded in for the praise mantle of the God who makes all things new. Jesus continues to post his willingness to make trades. Jesus Christ is the most welcome trading post. Yet he's just a common man, born of a common woman. Although nothing has come yet, something is already here. Though Christians have come to think of the promises of the new Jerusalem as having their fulfillment in the end of time, we must not lose sight of the ways in which God's salvation is meant to transform the world here and now. Jews and Christians alike are invited to participate in this salvific living, even in the midst of a world not yet fully redeemed, although nothing has come yet Something is definitely already here. It's already here. If salvation is not another place and time, but a reality of this world as it should be, what Christians have come to call the reign of God, then Isaiah is asking us to think about how we might participate in the ushering in of what is theologically speaking the real world, the kingdom of God. And so being a missional people, being a missional church in the light of this passage means profoundly challenging all forms of cultural Christianity that would make church an end of itself, a community of the saved devoted to maintaining a building, a set of programs, fellowshipping with the like-minded So first, mission happens when Christians and Jews turn their attention to those named as the recipients of the good news, the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the captives, the prisoners, the mournful, the faint of spirit. God reveals his special concern for the lowest and the weakest. In order to participate in God's mission of restoration, the people of God are sent first to those who most need to hear that God will provide for them and will redeem their losses. Mission is not primarily something that goes out from God's people by sending money or sending missionaries, but something that defines God's people 
It is our identity as God's people that we are on mission for those weakest and farthest from God. Mission exists for the sake of the oppressed, brokenhearted, imprisoned, and mournful. Second, mission happens when the nations of the world notice that the people of God live differently. That they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. Twice we are told that the nations will notice the blessing of Israel. And while there may be a bit of payback in this, like let's show those who oppressed us how much better we are of them. See how well off we are now after we've left them. That's the old ex-boyfriend trick. This is not all that's going on. The concern that the nations see God's salvation of Israel makes sense if we look back to 2nd Isaiah's prophecy in which God says, I will give you as a light to the nations. And the coming ahead to that last chapter of Isaiah, I am coming to gather all nations and tongues. All nations will see me and know that I am God. A restored Israel living as a jubilee community will stand as a sign of God's blessing to the nations around it. A kind of sacramental enacting of the salvation toward which it points. To be missional is to live as a people of good news, liberation, justice, and comfort in such a way that the world may take notice and is drawn to the ways of God. That chapter 2 of Isaiah imagines all the nations streaming to a glorified Jerusalem. And so long as Christians live as divided people, known to the world as those who judge and fight and exclude, the church will fail to be missional, no matter how much money it gives and how many missionaries it sends. Because here's the phrase that the angel used to those shepherds in Luke 2. Good news that brings great joy for people that look like you. No, I'm sorry. Good news that brings great joy for all people. See, we're so used to in our church communities and as Christians believing that the gospel message is made for individuals. That the good news is for me. Good news isn't for you. Good news isn't for people that don't look like me. Good news is for me. Not communities, not other people. But it was good news for people who look and think like me. And then we build churches and we have growing communities of fellowship. Come and join us. As long as you look and think like us, we will accept you. And our doors are open for everyone except the oppressed and the people far from God. Because it's not good news unless it's good news for everybody. It's not good news unless it's good news for unwed mothers, for our gay brothers and sisters, for illegal immigrants, for the elderly poor, for tortured enemy combatants. It's not good news unless it's good news for everybody. Unless everyone's jumping for joy at the sound of God come to live among the long, desecrated places. 
This is our savior. This is the one we have longed for. And things might have been good for you back in the day. Things might have really worked out for you when they were before that. But this is new because God has restored all things. He has renewed all things. He has lifted up the ruins and said, here is the good news I proclaim. You do not have to live in a desolated place anymore. You do not have to live in a house of ruin. It's good news that brings joy for all people. Have we not been anointed to bring good news to these people as well? Have we not been anointed to bring good news to those other, the thems of our lives? It's us against them, and us is doing fine, and them are on their own. Have we not been anointed to do that? The very thing that Isaiah was calling out to his people. The two, the few questions that we need to ask. Where is God's transformation revealed today? What is God doing today in the lives of people that offers hope and restoration to a broken world? Where do we see insteads today? Where do we see that exchange, that transformation? In other words, where do we see joy happening where there wasn't joy? Where do we see hope where there wasn't hope? Where do we see peace where there wasn't peace? Because I got to tell you, there's a lot of Christians walking around without love and joy and peace and hope. They have exchanged the idea of the coming of God for something else, for something that looks a little bit like him. And that's the devil's greatest trick that he's ever played. Isn't this God? Can't you be God? Isn't this thing God to you? Anything can be God if you work hard enough at it. The two questions of Advent always seem to be the same. How is the advent of God? How is the coming of God trying to come into my life, into our world? And what do I need to do to prepare for God's coming? Another way of asking the same question is, what do I need to change in order to allow God's transformation to take place in me and ultimately the world? Because I got to tell you, the good news is not for you. It's for our communities. It's for a restoration of the world. If you read the end of the story, it's not your name at the end of the story. It's Jesus' name at the end of the story, and it's a new community that has been built around him and the love and joy and peace and hope that comes with him. A common-born son. And return to the places we call home, we have to recognize the truths that pulled us away from the places of comfort and belonging. If our memory starts to play tricks on us, we will be deceived into thinking about the good old days, limiting our ability for our imagination to step into an unknown and unexplored and unexpected future filled with the potential for new growth. We have to be one another in community to bring about our realities together, the common core of Christ. 
to reform, reshape, rebuild, restore, and renew the places long, long, long devastated. Truly exploring what it means to remember and piece together memories of the places that formed us, the places that shaped us, and the places we recognize as home.